So this bolt of lightning shot across the universe and inspired me with the idea that we have to do a podcast. And that's what I wanted to tell you. We should do a podcast. Okay, bye. I hear record. And I hear record. Here we go. Yay. Yay. Welcome to Feature Creep. Colon. Colon. Built-in microwave. Uh, Semi-colon. Oh, semicolon. Oh, uh, existential uh, dread, and the and existential dread and the self-licking ice cream cone of despair. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's what we're talking about, and it's true, and you're just gonna have to live with it. Yep, yep. <laughs> that's that's the um, scoop of ice cream, and you're just gonna have to take it. So, where should we start? Should we start with a description of what a self-licking ice cream cone is, or do we hold people in suspense and wait until later? Oh man, I don't know. I mean, let's. I thought maybe we could talk. Let's just start at the beginning, which we started okay. with existential dread. Um, so, I think most people are familiar with existential dread, even if they're not necessarily familiar with the terminology, right? Okay, say that again because I missed all of oh, that. Yeah, so uh, we just want to let our listeners know that um, we are experiencing technical difficulties on the uh, <laughs> the old remote, the old remote Zoom video, whatever thing. Um, right. I'm sure no one else can relate to that kind of problem. No, probably not. They're not no. having any problems with their recorder maroos. <laughs> right. <laughs> I have top of the line recorder maru and I never have any kind of <laughs> any kind of issue whatsoever. right right yeah so right. um anyway uh ex- I was going to say why don't we start yeah. from the beginning and explore the concept of existential dread and I was saying yes. that we have probably I probably everyone is has experienced this even if they're not necessarily familiar with the specific terminology that has been used or is being used to describe the experience um, yeah. For yeah. me, existential yeah. dread is comprised of the entire experience up to and including the moment of dead. And then beyond that, it doesn't really matter. Anymore. Right. Yes. <laughs> so for me, pretty much everything has like a tinge of existential dread associated with it. Like mm-hmm. a- all of my waking consciousness is overshadowed by existential dread. Right. It's just like ubiquitous and ever present. <laughs> yeah. Nothing is spared. Uh, right. Oh. I I always thought um so I existentialism or the the like just to kind of come down to the basic terms. Um yeah. existential or existentialism is kind of this like idea existentialism is sort of this sort of philosophical inquiry about human existence um and sort of the the concepts of like lived experience of the thinking and feeling and acting individual um, right so um the the sort of uh i love this wikipedia article um yeah like the very second sentence is in the view of the existentialist, the individual starting point has been called the existential angst, a sense of dread, disorientation, confusion, or anxiety in the face of an apparently meaningless or absurd world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So interestingly, yeah. meaninglessness for me is one thing and 
it's actually kind of like a really simple default position for me to go back to, which mm-hmm. is like, well, none of this means anything, so we don't have to feel that bad about any of it. Right, um, right. Yeah, I mean, and, it's, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, the, the like, the second part of that, what was the second part? The oh, dread part? Uh, or the- yeah, so has been called the, ang- uh, uh, da, 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 uh, a sense of dread, disorientation, confusion, or anxiety in the, in, mm. in the face of, of apparently meaningless or absurd world. So I don't derive any of my anxiety from this from the a place of meaninglessness. I yeah, I don't either. Um I often felt like when I when I was first kind of reading about existentialism and a lot of the writing seems to stem from people still holding or like positing that there's like a a basic assumption about um like absolute moralism or um or some kind of like, like take it as given that there there is meaning, and so when things like that, there should be meaning, and there is meaning, and it's important, and it's important that meaning exists for our existence. Like you know, all of these ideas, right. and then when you have when you're holding all of that, and then you come to existentialism where it's like, uh, unless it's meaningless, then there is a crisis of your core belief being challenged, which I get, you know, that fe- that's a kind of crisis and, and a sort of existential angst. But if yeah. you don't, what if everything I know is wrong? Yeah. But if you don't have that to begin with, then that part of it goes away for me. Like I don't, I didn't, yeah. I didn't kind of come into this world with the idea that it had to make sense. It's just, right. you know, like I, I find it much more frustrating when you're interacting in society. Like if we want to talk about um, like, you know, talk about Black Lives Matter or fucking, you know, just like the fucking slaughter of human lives by the U.S. police. Like what? Right. Um, you know, and, <laughs> and you've got protesters ch- basically chanting, like, make it make sense. That's a very specific thing. Like that has to do yeah. with like, hey, assholes, like we live here together and we've created this agreement and social structure and you guys aren't making sense. That's a right. different kind. That's not existential. I mean. It's existential to the individuals, but it's my, my right. point is like that's not really what I think this refers to. Where it's more like, you know, um, I, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, with the with the cops, there's an element of existence to it because the by virtue of the fact that they keep killing people without due process, right? Like, right, exactly. Keep, yeah, I mean, we're even further back, more backer from due process. Like, we don't even get into the conversation of due process because most of the time, when police are shooting people, the thing, like in the case of George Floyd, right? Yeah, <laughs> I brought this up the other day to some of our friends that we go to protest with, and I was like, we still, still have not heard from anyone about the status of that fucking $20 bill. Right, right. That conveniently got dropped off the map. Whether or not it was a legitimate complaint in the first place. Yeah. Like, to add injury to insult, like, and that's putting it mildly. Right. There, It was never clarified whether what he was harassed for and killed over was even legitimate in the first place. It's not even clear if he would have been cited with a misdemeanor charge. That's the other thing. Like, mm-hmm. misdemeanor charges are usually brought, and the person who is, like, accused of passing a fake bill isn't even usually arrested. Right. For what it's worth. And so, like, we're so far back past the concept of whether someone was arrested for something legitimate and due process was observed. Like, we're cutting people off and killing them before we even get to that point in the discussion. Yep. 
which is fucking nuts. So yeah, like on some, in some sense, there's this existential dread with regard to what the police are doing to black and brown people in the street, which is lynching them. And so for individuals who are targeted by police, that is like a shortcut to actual like classic existential dread, right? Am I going to die today? And then like for no reason, furthermore, Mm -hmm. out of nowhere, like who knows where it's going to come from next left or right, right? Right. Uh, And then there's like this sort of existential dread that a friend of ours likes to bring up, which is like, what does it all mean? (laughs) Yes. And like, if the answer is there is no meaning, then for me, the dread comes right out of it because like nothing, there's no dissonance then. If there's no meaning, then when something goes away that I'm not expecting it to, there isn't a dissonance because my expectations were wrong in the first place and I shouldn't have been expecting anything because there was no meaning. Right, right. I think. Yeah, no, I I'm I, not. Yeah, I'm not bothered by the fact that there is no fucking purpose or meaning in life. We're just like biological creatures, just floating around until we're not floating around anymore. Like that's it. That's all there is. Yeah, I I think um, a lot of my my angst and dread comes from um, the acute ability for my bi- biology to create very like real suffering for myself. Like, uh-huh. it's you know. I, I'm not. I'm not afraid of things not having meaning, and I'm not afraid of things necessarily being absurd. I'm. My dread is around, or my angst is around the concept that it's like my, you know, by the nature of my existence of being this like biological bundle of nerves, they all can hurt a lot. Um, right. In a lot of yes. ways that are really like miserable. Mm-hmm. Um. So anyway. Um, yeah, the suffering that results, like my existential dread circles around suffering as well. Like I I don't care about being dead. Right. And so my cares about existence in opposition to my lack of cares about being dead, the cares that I do have largely center around how bad the experience of existence will be before it ends. And I don't really want it to be very bad. I would prefer if it was good. And it's been kind of bad <laughs> At a lot of points so far in 41 years. And so, I mean, one of the things that soothes my existential dread is that by the time I'm of, like, average age to kick off and not be around here anymore, Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that I'm so fucking fed up with the way everything is going and how painful and obnoxious everything is to experience that I'm just really glad when it's over. Right, right. Oh, thank God I don't have to listen to fucking Ben Shapiro talk ever again. Yeah, yeah. I I recently um, kind of had this – this is like a little more personal, but um, I, I had this experience where I finally kind of made this decision to like kind of stop embracing like a very abusive person in my life and, you know, stop mm-hmm. like interacting with them. And um, – I didn't realize until after that when the dust kind of settled and I just like started to feel like I felt a sense of relief that was so amazing that I I didn't even know like I could feel that good. Um, It was just kind of surprising. And then and I didn't realize like how low grade like my my continued interactions with them had been basically what had been happening was that I was feeling the whole time I kept in contact with them and kept like trying to interact with them and have some stupid ass relationship, I would, I was in the back of my mind, I was holding on to this idea that it's like, well, 
if it really gets bad, I can always just fucking pull the ripcord and bail. And I don't yeah. mean like bail out of the relationship. It never occurred to me. What I meant was like, I'll just fucking off myself. Like I, and, and it's not like, <laughs> right. it's not like I'm wandering around like idealize, like, you know, uh, basically holding on to the concept of suicide. And in many ways, it wasn't like, it never really, I wasn't even thinking about it consciously, right? Yeah. It was just kind of that like, comfort of like in the back of my mind knowing that it's like okay well I could just end things like I can just Mm -hmm. hit stop and be done and not have to deal with this so keep going and like that weird sort of um like continued cycle of of that was just fucked up and to get out from under that I was like oh shit like I don't have to you know I don't have to hold on to that as the one solution anymore right um or the like the the fallback position um, that's that's really similar to how I felt when I was going through like the first year's worth of nerve pain. Oh, I can um, imagine. Yeah. Because I was just it was really weird. Like I resisted the idea like for a little while. We thought it was just going to be a temporary thing. And then it turned out not to be a temporary thing. And it wasn't something life threatening that anyone has been able to discover. And almost six years later, I'm still here. Thanks in no part whatsoever to any of the doctors that I uh-huh. saw. Uh, fuck you guys. Um, so like when it became obvious that this was not going to be some short thing that went away, then my attention turned to like, well, how much longer is it going to be? And the indefiniteness of that, that undefined length of time that I would have to suffer. And like subsequently, now that I've been in grad school for a little while and I'm studying bioethics, which is the law of the intersection of law and medicine largely, but there's also some more avenues that are being sort of spun off off of that. One of the criteria for uh, discussing and framing conversations about bioethics is um, whether or not the conditions that someone or an organism is living through are considered medically intolerable, which is like actually a set of objective things that you can measure, right? Like this, 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 um, what's your score on all these things. And so after going through this fucking class that I'm in right now that's finishing today, Yay! April 23rd. Finished with my class. My first class at grad school. Um, The life, the the conditions that I have been living in prior to starting to take naltrexone just a couple of months ago. Yeah. um, For five and a half years, I lived in a condition that is, by definition, in bioethics, medically intolerable. I had a justified reason for wanting to seek out like suicide or medical aid in dying or whatever as a solution to my persistent medical problem that couldn't otherwise be solved, which was a shock to me. Right. Because nobody ever told me that. I had to figure that out on my own. No, None of my doctors ever said, oh, by the way, if you're feeling upset or anxious about this, that's completely valid because you fit a description that in our field of study legitimizes your desire not to be a part of this anymore. Because we can't do anything for you and no one should be expected to live in the condition that you're in. But no one ever fucking said that to me. And so at some point around the eighth month of me being really sick, eight months into this like protracted illness, it occurred to me that probably the only surefire way that this wasn't going to continue to be a problem is if I wasn't alive to experience it anymore. Right. And, And once I reached that line and I realized to myself that nobody was going to be able to help me and I didn't know if I was going to be able to help myself and the only way out of this was to not be alive anymore once I got really close to that line I was comfortable going over it 
in a direction that wasn't the logical conclusion of my existence. Mm -hmm. It was like, okay, so if we're willing to accept that not being alive anymore is a legitimate solution to this particular persistent problem, Mm -hmm. we can always opt for that solution and fuck anybody who doesn't like it. It's not their problem. Right. Um, And once I was comfortable with my closeness to that as an option, I was able to conversely push myself past that limit and start to explore what life is like when you are conscious for it beyond a point where is it is livable Mm -hmm. and then things got really interesting and weird (laughs) (laughs) and i lost a lot of my existential dread and then last year a year ago when covid happened Mm -hmm. i had already i feel like i was really uniquely positioned to deal with the existential dread created by a massive global pandemic with like a really ugly way of dying if you got sick enough to do so yeah i was like i was already prepared for you know the possibility of me not being around much longer right and so when that happened i was kind of like past the accompanying dread that I think probably a lot of other people started to feel at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I've that I, I want to kind of point out or at least maybe like, I'm not sure this is a fully formed idea, but I was just thinking about how (laughs) um, I imagine somebody might be listening to this and their interpretation of that is like, Oh, you know, that's that place where you're just like, fuck it, nothing matters and just do whatever the fuck you feel like. Um, and I think that that doesn't like, you know, like basically like the way that, um, like religious people like kind of oftentimes think about atheists where they're like, well, then what keeps you from like raping and pillaging people all the time? Like (laughs) this idea that like without that fear and like suffering that you're, you know, that what's controlling you and keeping you from being a menace to society. And um, I like the answer I have to that is like, it's just not like that. Like the reasons, the reasons you don't, you know, just because you, you're like, fuck it. I like, I'm so miserable that I might as well just like, you know, drive a car into the nearest bank and loot a bunch of money and go off and like do drugs and sex or whatever the things are that people do with a lot of money. I don't know. But um, the proceeds from a bank robbery. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. whatever the idea is there. But um, it's just not it's not like that. Like it's sort of it just means that oftentimes you reach a point where, like you were saying, it's like you reach a point where you're you're more equipped to handle things that that previously you would have been just like I, this is also intolerable but at some point you're like yeah. just keep going down the tunnel a bit and see yep. what you know see what's next because where i am now sucks and over there it looks like it sucks too but it's a different suck so i'm going to keep going that go you know go in any yeah. direction until you can kind of get to some some other side or you know swim to the far shore i kind of feel like i'm in existential retirement mode now <laughs> <laughs> we're like I made it through the hard part, and now everything after this point is just kind of like bonus and living off an existential pension. I love this idea. I suggest that um, maybe we can do a follow-up podcast to this one where we talk about existential retirement, and what we can do is actually look at and talk about all of the existential art that exists. Yeah. 
because I love that idea. I was I was thinking about um, when we were when we were coming up with this topic and we were like doing all of the like pre pre show preparation. I was thinking about how um, how it relates to our podcast, which is obviously art and design is a big part of our mm-hmm. podcast. And so mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> I was just thinking about all of the ways that existentialism and art kind of intersect. Oh um, yes, <clears throat> yeah. So. When I was studying philosophy in undergraduate school, one of the people in my cohort um, was like a huge fan of existentialism. And we just didn't read very much about ethics and existentialism. And I, my undergraduate degree was in ethics. And so most of the philosophy that I read centered around famous philosophers' opinions on ethics and little, uh, uh, some classics but Mm -hmm. much less of the classics than the specifics of ethics in the branch of philosophy so um i was always really interested in her viewpoints on things because my viewpoints were largely constructed out of what i read in in class and was able to prepare time to study and she had obviously done quite a bit of reading into existentialism before she undertook a course of study in philosophy and so her um, her take on things was really interesting, and I was always very comforted by the views of existentialists, although I'm not, like, really, really uh, familiar with them. Like, mm-hmm. I can't quote you anything that anybody said about it, but I did read um, a lot of Camus when I was in high school because I was fluent in French, and so I read some of his existentialist work in the language that it was written in, which was absolutely fascinating. I can imagine, yeah. It was really cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, I wish I had, I wish I had more. I'm looking at my bookshelf right now and I don't have hardly anything by the existentialists. This is probably something I should spend Damon's money on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, yeah. So yes, I, I think like, I, I think absurdity is a direct response in my life to existential dread because if nothing means anything and we're free to feel how we want to feel about everything because it's not prescribed for us then i choose absurdism (laughs) as a means of coping as opposed to trying to make sense of anything that doesn't make sense that just seems like a self-imposed punishment or a self-licking ice cream cone yes exactly yeah yeah um um well, let's talk about the second part of that. Let's talk about a self-licking ice cream cone. Um, yes. I think this is a hilarious I, – I was really delighted to find out the kind of the, – the, the thoughts on the origins of that phrase. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, what do we mean by a self-licking ice cream cone of despair? Uh, <laughs> and a self-lick, the, in political jargon, according to Wikipedia, on self-licking ice cream cone – um, a self-licking ice cream cone is a self-perpetuating system that has no purpose other than to sustain itself. Um, <laughs> so, <Right>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> according to the article, um, it may have been first used in 1992 in a paper titled On Self-Licking Ice Cream Cones uh, about NASA's bureaucracy. Um And he described it as, uh, so the author, James A. Veta, described it as a uh, or as why do humans go into space so we can go further into space um, farther not further farther right um yeah so uh 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think like in relation to despair, the concept of um, of the self-licking ice cream cone is that oftentimes with a lot of things that I think like people experience in a in an existential way is mm-hmm. that they're often like they're often like sort of self-sustaining and a little bit circular. Um, I, you know, depression and despair at some point you spend enough time in it, you start to wonder, like you start to feel despair about the t- amount of time you spent in the despair. Like, um, right. You know, there's, there's a certain level where you're like, okay, but now, now I'm not only like feeling bad about, the thing that caused the harm but now i'm also feeling bad about having felt bad like yes um, yes it it grows exponentially yeah and so um yeah ah that's a and it's tough i don't i don't know that i have any good answers um because by the nature of it the thing is like into when you're on the outside Man, things like that, like when you're on the outside and like whatever like low level dread or thing that's just been causing you like so much like discomfort goes away, it's hard after like really quickly, it's hard to be like, why would you ever feel that way? Mm-hmm. I, I, I get why people say to depressed people, like, have you tried just not being depressed? Like it because <laughs> it's it's dumb and it's useless and it's not helpful, but also it's like it really for me captures that nature of mind like the biology of it where it's like but when your brain is working and all the neurochemicals are firing you can't imagine feeling so bad that you're depressed like right. you can feel down and you can understand the like emotional downswing of of a moment but you can't understand the like the level of dread and anxiety and suffering that's going on when your brain isn't able to turn around and be like okay feel good now um yeah yeah, that's I think that's the part that 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 phrase like really highlights for me is it's like, man, when if you can get there, it's great. It's no wonder everybody's like you shouldn't feel depressed. It's like, well, duh. <laughs> like it's not right. It's not a it's not a preferred state of being. <laughs> Nobody wants to be depressed. Right. Even people who are like goth at heart and like uh like, oh man. I think internally I'm one of the darkest people I know and I hate being depressed. Right. Right. Yeah. I can't get anything done. I derive absolutely no joy from anything. I it feels like when I look at things and I'm depressed, I see things in a grayscale. Like yep. no kidding. It's like the color and Just... the vividness gets sucked out of my perceptive abilities. Mhm. And even my memories of being depressed or memories of things that happened in a time when I was very depressed also seem to be sort of like just washed out and sepia toned and like grayscale and nothing like nothing vibrant or outstanding. It's just a, a wash of ennui. <laughs> just a wash of ennui, yes. You know? <laughs> yes. Um, it's really interesting too when I look backwards like the last – Nine months of my life, <laughs> Rhett and Link were talking about this on um, Ear Biscuits, their podcast the other day. Uh huh. And Rhett was talking about like this group of people, <clears throat> you know, it, it's not a well defined group for obvious reasons when I say what it is. Uh-huh. There's a group of us, I count myself among these people, who have been secretly thriving all throughout COVID and we're not allowed to talk about it. Right. 
Like, the last months of my life have been some of the best months that I've been alive. Yeah, yeah. I've I've been really productive. I'm finally on the track that I want to be on with regard to my existence. I'm at school. I'm studying. I've wanted to go to grad school my whole life. Mm -hmm. Ever since I was in kindergarten, I was like, you can do more school after more school after this school? Like, that sounds great. And the experience of school was horrible. I had so much existential dread about school when I was a kid that when I was waiting on the street corner for the bus, I would see it show up at the end of the block and then take a right turn onto my street and head straight for me. And every single time I saw that bus between first and second grade, (laughs) I would take off in a dead run back from my house and my mom would have to drive me to school in the morning (laughs) every fucking day. Because I could not bring myself to set foot on that bus. I couldn't compel myself to be an active participant in the thing that I dreaded so thoroughly. And I was good at school and other kids kind of liked me. Like I wasn't the popular pretty girl, but like I was well liked. I didn't have a lack of friends. I did well in school academically. Uh I didn't get in trouble or punished. I wasn't a troublemaker. Like, and there's nothing wrong with troublemakers. I appreciate troublemakers and tricksters like nobody's business. I'm like, you have a completely different perspective on everything that's going on right now from everybody here. Like, that's really cool. Yeah. So, like, it wasn't about any of those things. It was just, I did not like the experience of being there. And like our neighbor, the teacher says, well, yeah, because it's just like being in prison. And the way that we teach people in school is fucking bullshit. Right. <laughs> so like, <laughs> when I look back, I'm like, oh, yeah, for sure. But I mean, just like, like, like constant fight or flight, you know, and and, and now I've learned that like since studying trauma and stuff, I've learned that there's also freeze. So I'm a fighter. Damon's a freezer, uh-huh. and um, I don't know, like some other people I know are definitely like the fleers, <laughs> fight, flight, or free- flee, um, um, or freeze. And so, like, I was definitely a fighter, and I think I was really uncomfortable with the idea of being backed into corner and having to assert myself, and so I would just flee. <laughs> right, right. Which is not my not my primary instinct, which is really interesting. I wonder if anybody huh. else out there has this like existential well, conditioning where it's I was like, thinking what about, I really want to do is like throat punch somebody, but I know I'm going to get in trouble for that, so I'm just going to run away. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Um, I wonder if your approach is kind of like me because I was thinking like I don't know if I'm a fight, fight or flight, fight or flight or freeze, mm-hmm. um, because I spend so much time like. I don't I shouldn't say I spend a lot of time, but usually I'm pretty good at avoiding being put in those situations in the first place. Yeah, you've gotten good at just avoiding. Yeah. Um right? Yeah. Or like not yeah, avoiding, like, but structuring your life in such a way that you don't have to confront these things. Right. Because I know that it's like being in a situation where either party is put into that position means that they don't have their autonomy in that situation. Because right. this more base system is taking over. Like, you know, um, you know, one of the struggles I have with, you know, having to kind of like distance myself from some like relationships is that those people, part of the problem is that they're, they're a fighter. And Mm -hmm. so to confront them and try to get past that means that they have to be put in a position where they're going to take like some base instincts going to take over. And I've already done it enough times to know that they just become, they black out and lose their shit. Like they just can't deal with it. Um, And so I'm like, okay, well then I can't, I'm not going to keep pushing that button. Like that's not helping anybody. So um, 
I was just thinking about in terms of that, like, you know, your avoidance of school is you kind of being like, you know what, there's a lot of those instances there and it might be better if I just book it right now and not yeah. do that. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, I, with all things psychology and those kinds of understandings, I always like try to take it with a grain of salt because it's so yes. oftentimes it's so reductive that it doesn't actually capture the nuance of being an individual and what it means right. to be in those experiences. Um, yeah, it's not always just one thing. Like, um, like I was saying, I my I feel if, if we're going to if we're going to give any merit to the idea that everyone is reducible in a stressful situation to one of three responses: fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah, which seems like way too fucking simplified, considering the like trillions of cells in your body and all of the fucking neurons firing back and forth and like the circumstances of the situation and your sensory perception and all of this shit right right so like definitely my instinct and and this has been reinforced over time the more traumatic incidences that i've been a part of i think what would make me feel best on the inside when i'm feeling existential dread is to fight something and feel as though i have agency right and yet a lot of times intellectually I realize that that is probably the move that's going to take my agency away from me because other people will then exert a removal of my agency for being a fighter. Right. <laughs> and so that will lead to more existential dread. And so like I do this, I feel like I do this math on the spot when something is like, ah, um, yeah. and usually I suppress my urge to fight somebody, although not always. Uh-huh. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the few times that I have turned to fighting as opposed to fleeing or freezing, um, <clears throat> it's worked out moderately well for me. Uh, not great, but yeah. also not the worst possible uh, outcome either. And I mean, I'm still here. So, um, yeah, I it's uh, it's all this heavy math that I have to do and weigh all of these incoming things and, you know, balance them against how I feel on the inside. I told my therapist that one of the things that I I think I like about or like is maybe not the best word. One of the things that I find weirdly comforting about hyper hyper stressful situations and emergencies mm -hmm. on the outside of me is that my re my natural inclination toward a response to that sort of stimuli is in line with that sort of stimuli as opposed to how I feel stressed out and ready to fight all of the time. And it's pretty clear most of the time that there's nothing that's presenting itself as an immediate threat to right, me. Right. And so paradoxically, when shit is actually really bad and when there's actually an emergency situation and someone actually has to think through and do something about it to solve the situation, that's when I feel most comfortable because how I feel all the time bordering on panic on the inside finally matches up to what I'm experiencing on the outside and that dissonance goes away. Right, right. And then you're suddenly, it's like, well, I know how to, this is this is comfortable. I know how to live in this environment. Right. Um, yeah, my actions make sense now, you know, to the outside observer, right? Because you're no longer yes. responding to that threatening teacup as a, um, as, as a potential source as of a, drama and ex existential dread. Right. Um, Yes, yeah, so weirdly, existentially dreadful conditions are the conditions in which I am most comfortable. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the ones that are not existentially dreadful are the ones I'm most uncomfortable in because I take everything as a threat at this point. <laughs> right. 
I mean, on some level, when something yeah. does finally take me out, I will be glad because for once I was right. Right. <laughs> finally. Right. <laughs> I can justify my response to myself. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to um, – I had a couple comments I thought about uh, when you brought up uh, Rhett and Link. I love how if – you, if you're not familiar with their show – um, they have a show on YouTube that seems to be the center of their kind of media empire. But um, mm-hmm. their whole shtick is like these like two best friends, southern southern raised best friends, like mm-hmm. just doing just normal shit, right? Like just sort yeah. of like goofy kind of like I wonder if you could – um, make things that aren't normally turned into breakfast, breakfast food into breakfast food, and then right. let's eat it and see what it's like. Um, yeah. You know, like, I, you know, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but just like, you know, and, and then it just escalates, right? It's like this, like, yeah. absurd, it's this absurd, like, watching, like, an, a series of escalation, dare, like, escalating dares just unfolding <laughs> over a lifetime. Um, yeah, totally. It's so great. It's really, it's very entertaining. Uh, but I also really appreciate that if you spend any time like consuming their their various forms of media, you start to realize that um, they have really interesting ideas about the world, and they the way that they communicate them is really kind of delightful. And they write about it, and they talk about it, um, and they bring up things like that. Like they talk yes. about um, <clears throat> you know these ideas that they have and. And like, you know, this issue of living in COVID times and some of us actually this being like a very good time for us, like generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I don't think he's implying that it's like, oh, we're all happy that the world is like that so many people have died. Like that is yeah. absolutely not the case. Um, we're not talking about like, hey, look, my stock portfolio got really huge because a bunch of people no, profiteered right. off of misery. Like that, not that kind of doing well. <laughs> right. No, but it's this like kind of fundamental shift in the way society works that really gels with who, we, like how we <laughs> engage with society in a bet, like more, yeah. uh, more successfully. Right. Like, yes. I mean, for me, it was like I've been a remote work, like work from home remote worker for 20 years. Like everybody's like, yeah. oh yeah, like it's really wearing and getting hard. And I'm like, in a way it is like, I would say the only downswing is like now people expect more Zoom calls every day and things where I'm like, man, you guys don't know how to do this. Like when you work from home, like you limit, like you set yourself up so you have these periods of independent work you can do. Right. You as, just block everybody out. Yeah. As opposed to this idea of like, we're going <clears> to <throat> pretend like we're all in a virtual office now. Where we right. come nine to five and then we have our morning meetings and then we have our like coffee hangouts and whatever. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not saying that you shouldn't reach out to people and communicate with people. That's I I would do that all the time. Like for me, mostly it was just like phone calls. Yes. It was just that normal old like we would text or I'd send an email and once the email was received and we both had some chance to digest what we were about to talk to, we would like agree on a time to give a call or just pick up the phone and we'd talk to each other and five minutes later the thing was resolved and now it's like, okay, well, we're going to have a meeting with 15 people on a Zoom chat, which means only of those 15 people, 14 are listening and one is talking at any one given time. And so it's it's this really like fundamentally misunderstood way to use the platform i think um totally i also another thing that speaks to the fact that nobody was prepared or even thought ahead about how to do this is that we all somehow ended up with zoom as our fucking communication platform yes it's like the worst one out there 
which which cracks me up because there's been so many that have come and gone yes! and the idea that like zoom all of a sudden just became the one was like yeah. i mean good on them for marketing and doing their thing but holy shit it's not, so subpar it's so subpar um Oh God, it's so rudimentary. It's like for children. It's so yes. And it's, the, the features suck. The the, the like everything the, about the it. The user terrible. interface, the way that they implement the features and the way that you like the way that like for most things it's like just the chat just disappears once it's gone. Like, <laughs> you know, like if nothing else, that just alone, I'm like, this makes no sense. Um mm-hmm. like to the point where it's like no one you don't use it. You don't use the chat, just turn it off. Just turn it off. Quit, if you don't even think about put it. Put shit in there. It's hard to get to. Um, yes. If if you can at all. Like, it's just... Anyway. Um, yeah. yeah. Zoom is awful. Zoom yeah. is not included in the secret thriving of the people no, no. during COVID. <clears throat> Zoom is something that we all have to stoop to. Yeah. <laughs> I have refused to install Zoom on my computer. I use it from the browser only. Oh, smart. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm like, fuck you. I don't want you fucking keeping tabs on what other tabs I have open and scraping my shit for data. Right? Yeah, you don't fuck need to you. be on my... Yeah. Eat yeah. a dick. Um. It's kind of funny, too. Like, I think because you and me and, like, Damon and a bunch of other people we know, we know a lot of people who work in tech who yes. have been remote workers and have been advocating for remote work for a really long time. Um, like, my day job that I had for nine years in retrospect and i knew this at the time but i couldn't prove it because i had never actually taken the leap to working remotely because they would never have allowed that right but retrospectively i am now absolutely 100 percent sure that the job that i had to get out of bed and drive 10 miles to and 10 miles home from every day and sit in fucking traffic that in the winter time if there's a snowstorm extends your drive to like potentially three hours from 10 miles oh, away god yeah. like that i'm not getting paid for i was like this is all purposeless It's all a waste of money and overhead, and it does nothing to enhance the job quality, the quality of the work that I'm able to produce from this office. There is no aspect of that job that I could not have done 100% remotely the entire fucking time. Right. And yet I was made to show up at that office, which is why a lot of the time I just didn't really work while I was there. I did something else. Yeah, I I always found um, in the few times, like, in my life, I've worked occasionally in offices, and I've even when I was a con like when I was basically running my own business, and I was essentially like a for hire contractor for software development. Occasionally, yeah. I would get, um, I would have situations where I needed to work in their office. So, like for instance, yeah. um, a couple years ago, I was working for a research institute, and um, I was basically contracting to write all their software for the. Um, for the informatics department. And so I was like the main software developer um, who was just on hire to do that. And the uh, the director of informatics would do other shit. Like he was supposed to be a programmer, but he didn't really know what he was doing. And I was a godsend, uh-huh. right? Like I basically did all the work. And and that was fine. Like it was a good agreement. And like not, not like he was hiding that from people. It was just like sure. it worked out. Like he did a yeah. lot of the administrative stuff and I did the – like I implemented a lot of the programs. Um, and those are two very different skill sets. A- I mean. Absolutely. Totally yeah. fine. Um, but then when he um, basically self-imploded and left that job um, – I they asked me because I'd worked with them for so long and so they asked me if I could like they were in a panic because his work like all of the programs that I'd created and all the work he was doing was supposed to support the 
well, was actively supporting like 2,000 users, right? Like mm -hmm. every day, 2,000 users logged into the system to um, update their accounts and do all the things that they needed to do to interact with, um, you know, the data that that it was representing. And so um, yeah. they were like in a panic. And I was like, well, don't worry. Like, I'll, I'm not going anywhere just because this guy decided to like career-wise jump off a cliff and, you know, shoot himself in the foot and the face and all the other – and a couple other people while he was at it. Like, I mean, not actually, but oh, my God. Like, you know, um, <clears throat> anyway, weird guy. So that happens. Yeah. And I'm like, don't worry. Like, I'll come. And so I stepped in and I I was um, like director pro tem for over a year. And that, okay. that required – well, see, this is the thing. For them, they wanted me to be in an office, right? And so I would yes. show up in the office. But the reality is, is like – me going to that office meant that, um, you know, 90% of my productivity just disappears. Oh, my God. Yes. Um, it was, you know, it it's fine. But it meant that most of the time I was dealing with perceived crises of people where they're like, yes. hey, you're here. Awesome. And suddenly they're in your doorway talking to you yep. in your office for like, you know, an hour about this thing. And And my problem, of course, is that as the sort of outsider, it's like I have very little power to... Like, I don't want to, like, I can't just say, oh, fucking eat a dick. I got more important shit to not do. Like, right. um, to not and, do you know, this. because a lot of these people are the people who sign my paycheck. And so it's like, if they deem this important, that's fine. And having even just that barrier of like, I got to send Ned an email rather than just pop in his door and tell him about this problem was right. all the difference between me, like having like a scene, like with the emails, it's like I can triage and respond and then get back to my mm -hmm. work with a conversation. It's like. I have to be actively listening. I can't also be like, you know, typing away on some code or like, you know, yes. doing some other shit. So um, anyway, uh, yeah, like I there's I I always felt like there's a kind of person that believes the way you manage people is is so wrong from the way that people actually thrive in an environment like there's people who like when they are a boss, they 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 they're above you, right? Like that yeah. in their mind that they're above you. And so they do all this shit that just makes for bad bosses. And the really good ones yes. are the ones who are like, I'm, my job is to support you and being successful at the thing that you're tasked with. Yes. Um, you're absolutely describing a phenomenon that I experienced firsthand at that day job. Yeah. It's just because I was the only person in my company who did my job. The only one, right? the, the only person for nine years, even though we grew massively in that amount of time and the problem that i experienced with my boss is that well i answered to one person who answered to the ceo so i got both of them breathing down my neck uh -huh. except well <laughs> quick side story uh -huh. <laughs> the ceo didn't bother me for like the last five years that i worked there because five years before i quit i beat him in a go-kart race at a company outing and he didn't speak to me or look me in the eye for five years after uh that. <laughs> Can you believe that? Even though like our offices were in a direct line of sight from each other. Oh my God. That is five so Five fucking funny. years. And then at the end of the fifth year, the day before I walked off the job, he came into my office and was like, why is this thing a thing? And I was like, I've had this conversation at least once a year, if not twice a year for the last seven years in a row. Uh -huh. I'm not having it again today. I'm not having it again today. And he was like, well, then you're not doing the job that I'm paying you to do. And I was like, oh, boy, <laughs> there is no coming back from that, you fucking moron. And I right? was like, well, you're not paying me to do the job that I'm doing. 
The board pays me to do the job that I'm doing, first of all. And second of all, I'm the only person doing this job for you. So if I wasn't doing it, we would all know very quickly that something was wrong. And that yeah. hasn't happened yet because I actually am doing the job that I'm supposed to be doing. You and April just don't know what that is because uh -huh. you're terrible bosses. <laughs> so much like you said, yeah. instead of being people who are like, listen, Everybody's getting what they need from you. So clearly you're doing the job that we're asking you to do, even if we don't have a fucking clue what that consists of, because we're lazy fucking people who don't have the intellectual capacity to understand the program that you're running right. for us. But whatever, it would all have been okay if all they said was, what can we do to facilitate it and make it easier for you to continue to do it? <laughs> but they didn't say that. No. They blindly accused me of not doing exactly what I was doing for them for nine years. And so I walked off the job because my boyfriend was like, um, <clears throat> why are you sticking around in that job? Yeah. And I said, because I'm getting a bonus in like several weeks at the end of the year. And he was like, well, how much is the bonus? And I was like, and you know, Damon, so you yeah. can, I'm sure you're already picturing how this conversation went. Well, how much is the bonus? And I was like, well, it's $5,000. And considering how much they underpaid me that was a significant boost in my annual salary if i stuck around for it yeah yeah to and for damon it's not that much money relative to the amount of money that he makes in general so right. he was like well five thousand dollars it seems to me like your dignity is worth a whole lot more than that isn't it yes and i was like fuck right and i walked off the job the next day i just quit yeah, I just I threw my key and a letter of resignation under my boss's door and I walked out. Oh, uh, awesome. Yeah, it was great. I was I was so hoping for the opportunity to tell her to her face, go fuck yourself uh -huh. and then walk out. But I didn't have the chance. So I just threw the key under the door and left. I nothing I have ever acquired or consumed or paid for that was intended to make me feel good ever felt anywhere near as good as I felt in those moments. Yeah. Because I was like, I have so much power to screw you guys, and I'm using it all passively right now. <laughs> Fuckers. Fuckers. So yeah, those people gave me all kinds of existential dread. What gave me even more existential dread at that job was the existential dread that everyone else experienced that spilled over to me in the form of people coming into my workspace yes which was somewhat isolated from everybody else's and crying openly on a daily basis in my cubicle yeah yeah i had this big fat cubicle at the end of the row next to the copy machines where like there was lots of noise going on all of the time and i couldn't hear other people's conversations and so it was the greatest cover ever for like you yeah know, having yep. private conversations and like in, in like fostering plausible not deniability did you hear what sound? no I, I don't hear anything i got these copiers back here i heard everything <laughs> i knew so much people confided so much in me because i never shared that info beyond what people had told me like it didn't i didn't disseminate it i just absorbed it and hung on to it and right. that gave me the existential um should we say competence uh -huh. to just not care about that job like everything everybody was telling me was telling me that these people weren't worthy of respect right? outside of the baseline of respect I had to give to them so that they would give me a paycheck, right? Right, right. So, like, leaving wasn't that hard at all. Um, 
And I want to say this too, the, the, the flip side, like those of us who are secretly thriving in COVID times mm-hmm. are probably thriving for a not insignificant reason. And the way that I see this is that the expectation, the, the, the fact that going to an office to work in front of other people is compulsory. Yeah. That tells me that people who are not thriving in COVID times secretly are the people who make me and other people who do have existential dread in no co- in non-COVID times. They're the reason we have that dread. You people. Yeah. Who, who cannot figure out what you like who you like and what you want to do with your lives are the reason that the rest of us are suffering and made to show up in an office every day because you guys use the office space as your fucking social agenda. You use it as the place that you can lay out and carry out your social agenda. You use the workplace as this place that you can force other people to show up and fucking listen to you. Yeah. Yeah, and it ruins all of our lives. And uh, I have to tell you something. When you pay me to show up at a job, you're not paying me to be your friend. You're paying me to put up with you with my mouth shut. Right. I am not your friend. I don't want to know about your shit. I want to come and do my job. And yeah. if you want to be my friend, you're going to have to try outside of a transactional relationship to do something about that. You can't force me to show up for a paycheck and somehow twist that into me being your social network. Oh, God. Yeah. So people like you who don't thrive in these conditions, who insist that being in the office is necessary, who insist that that you derive all of your social value and your personal worth from the relationships that you forge at work as if there's some kind of a stand-in for your actual like real friends and real activities and real fulfilling shit, you're the reason we all suffer. And like, I'm not coming back. <laughs> <laughs> I just want you to know I'm not coming back. <laughs> I, I imagine like there's a really easy way to test this, which is like um, – you know, you're probably not one of those people if you have a lot of employees who are clamoring to come back and hang out with you at work. That or all of you together are all showing up because you That's have no true. one else. Yeah. You're on a desert island together. I the mean, office is the new desert island. The office is the new desert island. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I, I really, man, it is, I don't know. Um, I just, uh, if you derive your self-worth from the interactions that you have with other people at your job, you need to seriously re-examine your existence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think at some point we get to a point where there's the issue of our, our like, this is like a societal problem that's beyond, like, condemning individuals for wanting to go into work. And it's more in the realm of, like, look at our fucking culture where yeah. we're, we're stuck in this situation where the majority of your daylight hours are spent working. Yep. And so the fact that the solution isn't, the solution hasn't been, Hey, let's all like work a little less and have more free time. The solution is 
let's try to make work double like let's double duty work yes. and give it some fun space and you know we'll put a slide in the corner office and like a kiddie pool filled with balls or whatever and now it's a fun place to be and now you can spend even more time here like right. what fuck you no fuck you yeah like i just fuck you and your mandated fun yeah um i one of the things i really bristle at especially when i was applying for a lot of jobs was all of the the things that people list as perks and the way that they they value they try to value your overall package like your payment package and yes. like you know you're let's say you're paid $50,000 a year of salary but they're like but really it's more like 75 because and then they list some things like you know you we're going to give you $2,000 to spend on this and we're going to give mm -hmm. you $4,000 a year to spend on this and mm -hmm. then you're like oh wait so really what you're doing is you're paying me in shitty ass gift cards that really limit my freedom of it's what coercive. I can use. It, yeah, it's fucked up. It's coercive because they're dictating how you can spend your money. They're dictating how you can spend a portion of the salary that you fucking earned by working for them and yeah. trading your time on earth for their shit. It's garbage. It is garbage. It's fucking garbage. Y'all need to quit it. Knock it off. Um, <clears throat> I will say that I have made some great friends at work, but what defines them as friends is the fact that we give a shit about each other's lives outside of work. Yes, yes. And exactly. we do things with yep. each other outside of work, like going and having experiences that don't relate to what we do for money. Gotta get away from this thing that we do for money, you know? Yeah. Everything's yep. about money. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, existential dread about work is mostly about the people that I have to encounter while I'm at work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. Like I have yeah. <laughs> I have so much less existential dread about like school because I'm like, oh, we are all here voluntarily and we all like the same things. Yes. Yeah. So I don't mind talking endlessly to people at school about stuff because I'm like, even if it's not related to what we're studying at school, because it's like we are not there because we're forced to be like needing money is not a good metric for choosing friends. Yes. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens when you have friends at work. It's like the only thing you have in common is that you're all desperate for a paycheck. Right. I mean, <clears throat> most of the things that I could potentially share with friends about who I am are things that would make a working relationship almost untenable. Yeah, yeah. Like, trust me, you don't want to know about my extracurricular activities. It's all you'll think about every time you see me at the fucking copy machine. Right. And you won't be able to get those images out of your head. Uh. I bet I would love to know who I've given existential dread to and in what form. Yeah, I I've noticed um I generally like I have this I've expressed this concern to you before which is that um I'm always really a little uh reserved with like sharing my sort of like inner workings of how I think about things because most people that I often share ideas with their their reaction is horror like yes. like i'm just like <laughs> i you know i'm sitting here like for me it's like i've just had this like interesting thought process and i'm wondering like you know what like how that works and i'm feeling kind of close to this person next to me and uh -huh. i i might share it with them and then i do and it's like they're just horrified that a brain <laughs> could work like 
it's like it's not even like I'm like, hey, so like, how would it feel if we like maybe decided to like go buy some guns and shoot people or some bullshit thing that you know like that yeah. you would imagine like seems <clears throat> horrifying? No, it's more just like you know I'm thinking about um like this social interaction I had the other day, or I'm thinking about um you know how I want to like structure my life in the next couple of days, or handle this situation, or even handle mm-hmm. my internal feelings. Like I'm mm-hmm. I you know this thing happened to me like at work, I'm frustrated and I feel this way, and then I'm trying to explain to this person, and I can see them like they recognize the like the main components, and they recognize the idea that it's like okay, so he's exposed some like you know sensitive information about his personal feelings so i'm not going to say something mean but i can just see the look of horror on their face as they can't comprehend that someone would think that way and feel that way like yeah i don't i'm just like okay well uh, clearly i you know am just gonna have to run around all of this and find a a, a few of you who i can share these like thoughts and ideas with um and there are a few people out there like i have a friend i work with every day because we so this is funny to kind of go back to um, the whole thing about being in an office. Uh, a friend of mine also is stuck in a work from home situation. And um, for her, she had not uh, really worked from home that much. I mean, it wasn't that she had not done it ever. It was just like, I was like, I just have my thing. Like my my life is structured around, you know, there's a room yeah. in my house. There's a space in my house. There's, um, I know what like I know what needs to be done, but I had been kind of struggling at that time um, for a lot of reasons I didn't really realize at the time, but um, Mm -hmm. you know, I was really struggling to be productive even in that environment. And so having an accountability partner is good. And so we, we basically like set up this situation where we, we basically video call each other in the morning and we just leave that window open the whole time. And so, there's somebody there and we talk to each other occasionally and um, and we have like kind of a good work rhythm because the thing is like we're not working on the same shit at all. Um, right. But uh, she's definitely one of those people who often says she enjoys the way my brain works, which um, is funny because most people that I've encountered really don't like it's not like yeah. they don't care. They really find a Just lot of discomfort it. with the way that my brain works. Apparently right. like I to the right. point where I'm like, OK, well, I've learned to keep that, you know to myself um, yeah i think i think you and the friend of yours who i also know who yes. is your accountability buddy it feels like the three of us are maybe like in a life raft sailing yes. away from like office island yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes we got one coconut and we're gonna share it <laughs> yes it's gonna be fine we're it's gonna leaving. be fine it's fine yeah this is fine. this feels like prison i'm leaving yeah Oh, man. Um, so, yeah, you guys would leave the window open and just chat with each other occasionally. and Yeah, yeah. It's just there. And, um, you know, and then if there's a meeting, we're like, you know, okay, I have a meeting and we like hang up and then we like call each other later. And it, it it's nice because um, – and it's a good working relationship because it's not like either of us are like looking at each other and being like, okay, are you – like I'm not looking at her computer screen and being like, hey, are you, you know, actually getting work done or are you back to surfing porn or whatever? You know, I mean <laughs> – I don't think that's actually the case, but it's always a good go-to. Um, right. You know, that's shocking. It's, a, it's, a, it's like Nazis. It's like a it's, clear, obvious yeah. thing that you're not supposed to be doing. Right, exactly. Don't be a Nazi. Don't look at porn at work. Yes. <laughs> Rarely are things so crystal clear. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and so there's many days where it's like, you know, you kind of – it's been like a phone-in day where it's like I didn't do a lot of work, but I still leave the window open because it keeps me – 
in the space of like trying to get you know getting some stuff done even when yes. i really don't feel like writing that stupid fucking email or responding one more time to the stupid inquiry that doesn't make sense yeah um, why don't we have cle credits for our new york <laughs> yes. I'm not having this conversation again. <laughs> right. <laughs> Fair warning, you are on dangerously thin ice with me, sir. Oh, man. I lately I've been getting some of these emails um that when they write to me and they ask these questions and I, to be clear, I really enjoy this company that I work for and for the most part every and actually everybody is very professional and like a lot of people understand, but it is funny to me. It makes me realize like how how specific my work is that when mm-hmm. I get these emails, like with inquiries about like a project, it really betrays how little they understand about the project. Um, yeah. And in this instance, like it's fine. Like I get it. Like that, that makes sense. But there's been so many times in my life where I'm like, especially as a contractor where I'm getting an email from, um, you know, my director, the guy who I took the job over from. And I'm like, dude, yeah. you implemented the plan for this. Are like, you wrote the plan for this. I'm following it. <laughs> And you don't even know what your own system is supposed to do. And you're asking, like, it's not like he's asking me what it's supposed to do. He's writing, betraying all this, like, all the misunderstanding that he has about how it works. And, like, saying, oh, hey, when this happens, and I'm like, that will never happen. Yeah, but if it did, no. Like, we've literally addressed that. Like, that part doesn't exist in this. Are you saying we need to have that happen now? And he's like, oh, no, I don't know. And then, you know, it's just, (laughs) like, I'm like, oh, Jesus, like. And then, and then by the end of it, it's like the quite like when we arrive at trying to answer the question he has, it becomes so painfully obvious how irrelevant the question is. Oh God! He's like, you know, should we have apples at the picnic? And I'm like, okay, so we're going to a picnic. He's like, well, I don't know. You wrote the okay. Wait, so are we at what? And then at what? the end of it, it's like he's like, wait, but are we having apples at the picnic? And I'm like, dude, we just went through all the reasons why a. Apples don't exist in this universe you've created. B, picnics are not a concept that's implementable. And C, the fact that you're still asking makes me think that you're not even listening to anything I fucking said. Um, <laughs> this sounds anyway. so familiar. It's so familiar. Yeah, it's so familiar. I mean, we, you that? and I. We're not in a picnic. We're in an elevator. Yes, right. On the 88th floor. And we're only going to be here a few more minutes as the elevator transitions from this floor to the next one. Next like, what right. the fuck are you talking about? Like, and even in those situations, like, you and I would be like, I'm for the absurdity of this. Are we having a picnic? And as we're getting out the picnic gear, they're like, what the fuck are you doing? We're like, it's a picnic. You're like, you just brought up a picnic. They're like, no, no, no. I didn't mean like that. Uh. <laughs> Anyway. Now I feel like I feel like a lot of my conversations devolve into the sort of conversation that happened when like the Star Report came out and Bill Clinton tried to get out of receiving a blowjob culpability for receiving a blowjob yes. and then lying about it yes. by having a semantics argument about the question of what the word is is. Uh- <laughs> you know? Yes. Like fuck you, Clinton. Right. You fucking rapist. Shut yes. up. God. Anyway, that's yeah, that's totally like so. So in the meta sense, uh-huh. my existential crises are never about like, what does it all mean? Or like, where do we go when we die? Or what's happening before I lose consciousness and never come back? Like uh-huh. a lot of my existential problems <clears throat> directly result from the way that other people are trying to enforce a version of reality that is a not enforceable, b not accurate. And C is not something I want to participate in. Right, right. 
Like most of my existential dread honestly comes from everybody else. I would feel less worried if I was dropped off in the woods and had to fend for myself than I do trying to actively participate as a functional member of society in this group of people. (laughs) (laughs) Whoever this group of people is. It doesn't matter. It's always the same. I don't understand what the grounds are for what you're expecting of me right now and trying to enforce against me. Yes. (laughs) What is happening? Who's in charge here? <laughs> I have a problem with people in charge. That's my existential dilemma. Yeah. I I remember um, when I was a kid and I got diagnosed with ADHD. They called it ADD then. Um, yes. I also got the like comorbidity diagnosis of um, like what's it? It's. It's like a fancy term for obstinance. Um, Oppositional defiance disorder? That's the one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Ask me how I knew that. Yes. <laughs> how did you know that, Meg? Well, my brother was also diagnosed as ADD before it was ADHD, and he was given a diagnosis concurrent with that that was of oppositional defiance disorder. And I looked at everything that was happening to my brother as an outsider, and uh-huh. I thought to myself, well, first of all, I don't think he has a problem. I think how other people expect him to behave is the problem. Yes. Yeah. I like, I think I w- he manages himself quite well, actually. <laughs> right? I think it's the fact that all of you have a problem with how he manages himself. That's the problem. It's not the problem. That's the problem. It's how you handle the problem. That's the problem. And I looked at yes. what he was experiencing and I was like, well, everything you're claiming to be true about him is also true of me. But because I can manage to pull off A's in school and keep my mouth shut, you don't think I have any of these problems and you're wrong. Right. It's only like from my point of view, it's only a disorder when outsiders perceive it as causing a problem for you. Yes. And so as you get better at it, it's no longer a disorder. You just get better at like subverting the like the people in your life who are trying to have some control over your own agency. That seems accurate to me. And then you don't have the disorder anymore. You that's an easy one to solve. You don't have to yep. stop being defiant. You just need to figure out how to get past these people in a way that benefits you even more. Like the whole thing is like you suck at being defiant. That's why it's a disorder. As soon as you're yes. better at being defiant so that your life is better because of the actions of you like subverting the like bullshit that people throw at you, the yep. sooner you'll be out of the disorder and you know away yes. you go. Um, I was extremely skilled at subversion and my brother was not so much. Right, and I think that's right. the only difference between us. Exactly. And I like when I look back, I always think like, oh, man, you guys don't know what you're talking about. I am exceptionally yep. good at this. The Like my approach, though, <laughs> was that yeah. oftentimes like there would be like if I were being defiant in a way that it was apparent to somebody, it was because I'm letting that person know that they are continually trying to like take over my autonomy in a way that's unacceptable um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and oftentimes because i like i got in trouble a lot at school but never no teachers i know ever felt like i was disrespectful of them or that right. i was like a kid who was looking to harm people the shit that i got in trouble for was when i was like okay like this is an arbitrary boundary mm-hmm. poke yeah you shouldn't poke that wait but why is it there poke like you know like I'm not saying we should take it down, but like, please let's apply Chesterton's fence to this. Like, yes. why is it here? Yes. Like, I I see that it shouldn't be here, and no one can tell me why it's here. And the one reason you tell me is clearly not real, right? Like, you know, 
Like, yeah, the fact that I need a hall pass in the hall in a in a with with a school size of under like 250 people where everyone knows everybody. Yeah. If you see me in the hall, you know me. It's not like, oh, that guy's got a hall. Like most people in the halls who are wandering around know every where everybody should be. Yeah. Like me carrying some arbitrary fucking hall pass doesn't do shit anyway. Um, well, also, like if you're young enough to need a hall pass, your yeah. concerns are not really you and the other students. They're the concerns of the people monitoring the halls for children with hall passes should really be about adults who are not supposed to be there, who are yes. potentially there to victimize children, not children who have to go to the bathroom. Right. <laughs> My God. Yes. It's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> I when I was a senior. Well, before I was a senior in high school, I didn't want to be in high school. I I had had the opportunity to skip grades prior to that. <clears throat> and for reasons we won't go into in this remaining time, I was not permitted to do so by my parents. And uh-huh. so I felt like I was definitely in prison because I was getting the, the existential dread that I felt for the first 18 years of my life was almost entirely created by my parents. Um, and it was because they expected an extremely high level of proficiency and productivity out of me. But yeah. when the natural consequence of that is, for example, that you have worked your way through all of your shit and you should probably just skip fourth grade and then you should also, it's suggested later, probably skip ninth grade as well. Right. And then your parents are like, hey, the natural conclusion of you being an extremely high performer is that you should advance beyond other children your age. Yes. That was unacceptable to them. Right. Right. And so I had this like extreme dissonance in my life where I was expected to excel past everyone. And then the second I did that, I was held back. Uh huh. And it made me suicidal basically from frustration. Yeah. Um, which is when at some point I realized, I think it was about the time that I got my driver's license. So I turned 16 at the beginning of my sophomore year. Oh. And I turned 18 at the beginning of my senior year. Because as a small child, I taught myself to read. And my parents felt threatened by that. And so they held me back for kindergarten because they felt I needed to be socialized because I was too intellectual for other children my age. (laughs) So I was the oldest kid in kindergarten because they made me start kindergarten a year late. It's so baffling and batshit. I mean, as an adult now, as a 41-year-old, I look back at my parents and I'm like, these people, all of this can be summed up very simply. My parents are not good candidates for parenthood. Right, right. They don't have consistent views. They don't have consistent expectations. They don't have um, lives that are... Uh, examined. They don't go through a self-examination or a self-reflective process. And therefore, they're of very little use to other people who need guidance from them. Right. And so I didn't realize this until actually until I was about 30 years old. And then I started to see a therapist. And I was sitting, I think I told you and Dana this the other day, I was sitting in my kitchen washing dishes and just thinking about like all of the things that led me to seek out therapy. And and Uh I've had a therapist for like 10 years now. Basically, and same one. I really like her. She's very helpful to me. Yeah. Uh, she validates all my rage. Um, <clears throat> I was just thinking, like, if somebody ever asked me, oh, what what compelled you to seek out therapy? Oh, I started seeing a therapist the day after my parents broke into my house on a Sunday night. <laughs> I'm laughing. I mean, it's absurd, but I'm laughing at the, uh, <laughs> you know, the absurdity of it, right? Like, Yes. I was like, so listen, lady. Uh-huh. Um, 
I think I have a really fucked up family. This is this is now apparent to me in ways that I've been resisting acknowledging for some time. Yeah. And I think I'm ready to make the leap in a different direction away from these crazy people. And I don't know how to do that. And I'm realizing that the very fact that I need to leave this group of people is what makes me unprepared to handle any kind of a life outside of them. Right. Like, <clears throat> I am now recognizing how toxic and, like, ridiculous these people are and how poorly they've set me up to interact with the world around me or be successful in it, much less. Uh -huh. And so I just need some objective help from a human being who is an adult not related to me and who doesn't have, like, any stake in my yeah. existence or survival. I just need you to help me get a couple of ground rules right for going forward as an adult. <laughs> right. Because I don't want to repeat these mistakes and everything so far has been garbage in and I'm worried that everything is going to be garbage out as a result, you know? Uh-huh, yep. <clears throat> and yep. it pretty much had been up to that point. <laughs> like, everything I tried failed miserably and I wasted a lot of time and a lot of effort on myself in the wrong directions and especially other people who were unworthy of my time. And so as soon as I started seeing her and as soon as I kind of decided that my existential dread was solvable and it had a specific cause and all I needed to do was eliminate that cause and replace it with something better, like almost overnight, no exaggeration, shit just started turning around. Uh-huh. Yeah. I got a better job. I like graduated from college a couple of years later. I put my, which I put myself through entirely with no support from anybody, you know? I mean, yep. there was support from like the people at my school, but from people in my daily life, absolutely zero. Nobody right, even knew right. I was in school, basically. Like, right. It was just something that I did. And so I, I, I don't know. I, that's how I circumvented it and worked around it. And it's been working ever since really well, actually. I'm pretty thrilled with how things have turned out, all things considered, but. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, if like just the way that things are in terms of like, oh, you're an organism and you're just here with other organisms on the planet and organisms come and go. None of that bothers me in the slightest with regard to my existence. Right. Right. Yeah. Like it's, I don't have this like need to be singled out as like some kind of, I, I I don't know. Like I don't have things don't have to make sense in that regard to me. Yes. Me like too. my existence doesn't have to make sense. Other people's existence. It's the like, it's the shit that we've already agreed to that I want to make sense. Yeah. Like, you know, if we're going to have agreements and we're going to kind of like try to meet at the table, then it's got to make sense. Like that's just the nature of it. Like, you know, anyway. Um, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> Well, um, I I have uh, I have to go to a meeting not right away, but pretty soon. <laughs> is so. it an existentially dreadful meeting, or is uh, it going to be okay? <laughs> it should be fine. Um, I yeah, I don't have a lot of like uh, I've I've got all my ducks in a row for this meeting, so it will be fine. Um, but I think we need to uh, do some wrap up so we can. Yeah, what's our color of the day? All right, so I just sent you a link, um, okay. and our color of the day. Uh, so let's see. Today we have uh, uh, there's two colors, as always. Like it's usually a you know paired colors uh, from our research department. So they said they right. sent the color monolingual exoticism. Oh, yeah. So monolingual exoticism is a sort of green. Um, so the the uh, the what is it? The uh, hexadecimal value for this is going to be, mm -hmm. uh, again, hashtag 
zero F eight E four E. Um, that's zero F eight E four E. And if this is the first time you're listening, if you just pop that number, so you're going to type in Octothorpe or pound sign or number sign or hashtag, you're going to type hashtag into Google, you're going to go hashtag zero F eight E four E and you search for that and Google will pop up this color for you right away. Um, mm-hmm. and so you can have a look at it, but it is, um, how would you describe this color? Um, the, the color reminds me of like if you took the toilet bowl blue color that results from those like tabs that you can put in your toilet tank that oh, yeah clean mm-hmm. toilet bowl blue plus urine <laughs> plus urine yes yeah um it's yeah, like this... peed on toilet cleaner right right <laughs> green yeah so it's definitely a fairly neutral tone like it's not brighter or darker it's like really kind of right in the middle um mm-hmm. and uh it's just a very kind of yeah toilet like a... yeah um uh, kind of like a fake grass green yeah kind of a fake grass green um it's it's sort of unassuming by itself, but yeah. uh, if you add – so the research department, the second color, um, as we've talked about before, having two colors is always good. You need something to reference. Yes. So its reference color um, is actually testate outside. <laughs> and uh, so testate outside is, uh, again, so this is hashtag 26799A. Um mm-hmm. And we used to give the RGB values. I don't know if those are helpful, so I'm not going to give them. And then if you are a listener who actually enjoyed getting the RGB values, because maybe that helps you like visualize what the color looks like, yeah. um, then uh, please write in and write us an email. That'd be a good opportunity for you to reach out to us. So our email address, uh, you can email Dana, our executive assistant. That's D-A-N-A at F-C-B-M dot I-O. So uh, yeah. <clears throat> we've got these two colors, monolingual exoticism, which is a kind of... Um, as you said, like a toilet, a toilet green and, um, and testate outside. How would you describe that color? This would be a good color for a silk tie. If you don't want to offend anyone with your clothing. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's very like muted blue. Like Mm -hmm. it's not a Royal blue. It's not a very assertive blue. It's kind of like sky blue. If it was maybe a little smoggy outside. Yes. (laughs) Just maybe a little (laughs) smoggy outside. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, good times mm -hmm. yep um all right well uh i think that's all i have to say about that excellent we did we've done some excellent work here today yep yep we are excellent our podcast a maru record a maru record a maru (laughs) record a maroony (laughs) roo i don't know why that makes me laugh so hard um (laughs) When when that showed up on the calendar and then like you started <laughs> laughing about it and anyway yeah good yeah. times just uh, add a add a add a maru at the end of everything and your life mm-hmm. is going to be a little little more absurd and a little bit better yep yeah okay all right I gotta run um, okay. okay thanks I everybody. need to go write a paper okay. <laughs> and you need to have a meeting yep all right <laughs> thanks thanks everyone okay bye okay bye.